Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Belief and Unbelief. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of moral and political philosophy, free will, artificial intelligence, consciousness, death and spirituality, and more. So, get ready. Let's make sense of belief and unbelief. If there's a central fulcrum to consider for Sam's overall interests and efforts, it may very well be this concept of belief, questioning the nature of it, considering the power of it, probing the fragility of it, exploring the absence of it, distinguishing it from other types of knowledge conjecture, and trying to describe it physiologically. We could use an examination of belief as the entryway to just about any of the episodes in the entire catalog of Making Sense. But to avoid such wayward meandering through the archives, Let's take a quick look at the map that we'll be using here. We're going to start with three interviews of women who left faith systems under different circumstances. Each of these women are now engaged with different levels of advocacy, and all of them have their own opinions and frustrations with what they see as a cowardly or hypocritical attitude when it comes to the promotion of universal human rights and the political sanctity of religions. You'll also hear Sam's full-throated agreement on many of those observations and critiques. We'll then take a turn towards the conceptual, philosophical, and existential concerns of religion and belief. This turn will take us towards Sam's brand of atheism, which moves quickly towards his interest in selflessness and meditation, as being intertwined with what religions are claiming to have on offer. Then, we'll take a step further away from the personal, and let Sam and a guest play around with ideas of epistemology, or the frameworks for understanding how we know what we know. And finally, we'll come back and do something slightly different in this compilation. We'll borrow a few important moments from Sam's career which are not directly from the Making Sense archive. These will be two excellent audience questions from live events that echo familiar responses and concerns regarding Sam's advocacy of atheism. So let's start there briefly. Sam's atheism. We are really prisoners of literature. 
right now. We are, we are constrained to talk either explicitly about these books or in, in some vague conformity to these books. Every person in this room has more access to information and scientific knowledge and, and just what is now basic common sense than the authors of the Bible and the Quran. And, and in fact, there's not a person in this room who has ever met a person whose worldview is so is as narrow just by, by the sheer time in which they appeared in history as the worldviews of Abraham or Moses or Jesus or Muhammad. And until we grapple with that fact and honestly commit ourselves to a 21st century conversation about the possibilities of human well-being, we're just going to be at sea and we're going to be trying to, we're, we're going to be trying to figure out whether we should pass laws about gay marriage and whether we should ban blasphemy at the UN and whether we should allow newspapers to print cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad and we're going to just be bewildered by the the relentless certainties of people who are obviously lying to themselves. From time to time, new listeners are taken aback to hear just how deep Sam's distaste for religion runs and how hostile he can appear to be to it. Sam's public career began in earnest with the publication of a book called The End of Faith, which will be recommended reading for this subject. He's described this book as his direct response to the events of September 11, 2001. While he may change phrasing in certain passages if he would rewrite the book today, his attitude of frustration with the shielded, protected status of faith systems, at least in the U.S. at the turn of the century, would not be any less fierce. This book hit the shelves alongside Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, and Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell. All of the books were successful and launched what became informally known as the New Atheist Movement. There are several vague definitions floating around, but Sam thinks of it as a renewed public effort to push back against the special status of religion, given an interconnected, technological world quickly raising the stakes of the persistence and perpetuation of bad ideas, as exhibited by 9-11. New Atheism's most controversial impulse was also showing little hesitation to speak about individual belief systems as causing specific and distinguishable levels of threat and danger. Sam and the New Atheists took a stance that all religious belief systems are philosophically harmful, but that it is only honest and politically prudent to notice the specific political and social consequences that each system presents. It's important to note that that is a fluid stance that can and should constantly reorder its beliefs of most concern, given the complex contextual situation of global politics, technology, economic status, history, and much more. It also doesn't necessarily cast familiar codified religions as the eternally fixed targets of critique. Systems of political ideology, pseudoscience, and magical explanations can become the rational targets of objection given the right circumstance. Throughout this compilation, we'll be considering some of the debates around the tactical efforts which take aim at all of these harmful belief systems. An important tenet to start with in order to follow Sam through these conversations is this simple one which Sam espouses. Belief motivates behavior. Sam goes to great lengths to make this point. Bad ideas are a far bigger problem than bad people. 
By this he means that bad people are luckily quite rare. A bad person would be someone physiologically disposed to do harm, something akin to bad brain wiring or genetically determined sociopathic tendencies, where the person derives actual pleasure from inflicting harm and is physiologically unable to feel empathy. These kinds of people do exist, of course, and you should listen to our compilation on free will to understand how easy it should be to conjure an attitude of honest compassion towards them, while also safeguarding society from them. But what is overwhelmingly more common is that an otherwise perfectly good person has bad ideas which motivate his behavior, bad software running on good functional hardware. Sam points out what is simultaneously so frightening and encouraging about this fact. If we lived in a world that was chock-full of actual psychopaths who were impervious to being persuaded by good ideas, that emergency would feel rather hopeless and dangerous. But because the mind and brain are generally open hardware systems, it matters greatly what kind of software is running on them. If we take it as a given that the vast majority of brains out there are perfectly capable of enacting good behavior, then there could scarcely be anything more important than trying to transmit good ideas to as many of them as possible. This stance motivates Sam's effort to persuade through argumentation rather than condemn and cast out. He sometimes summarizes this situation by saying that conversation and persuasion is really all we have as an alternative to violence, and we've surely had enough violence already. This doesn't discount the truth of an enormously regretful necessity of violence when the situation forces your hand, but that complicated point is best explored in our compilation on violence and pacifism. With that groundwork under us, let's go to our first clip. As we mapped out, this clip will be a personal story of shedding a religious belief system, and as we wanted to make sure to flag, it is only a very small aspect to an otherwise rich and full story. So our encouragement to seek out the full conversations after hearing these clips is especially urged here. One of the different strategies of persuasion, which is sometimes deployed by someone who is convinced that religious belief is a dangerous hindrance, could be called militant atheism. While none of these persuasion strategies have firmly agreed upon definitions, this concept of militant atheism might be most clearly exhibited by the work of Christopher Hitchens. He used sharp and relentless ridicule and attack aimed squarely at religious belief and institution. This attitude is certainly not for everyone given its aggressive messaging and sometimes jeering tone. But we're about to hear someone's story that started with the intended defensive and retreating response that militant atheism can instigate and eventually led to her taking a closer look at the charges coming her way. After failing to mount an adequate response, she was moved to reassess her belief system. This is an episode featuring Sarah Hader. Hader co-founded the Ex-Muslims of North America, which does non-belief advocacy work and runs a supportive community of questioning people. They provide safe and confidential outlets for Muslims who may have growing doubts and concerns about their religious faith. But for our purposes here, we're going to listen to her teenage encounters with militant atheism and her subsequent personal journey. We'll also stick with her conversation with Sam to hear a bit of mutual frustration with what they describe as a liberal confusion when it comes to open criticism of otherwise illiberal ideals. In the case of this clip, they'll be discussing the hijab specifically, 
and the clash of feminism with religious freedom. This conversation is from 2017, and there will be some political references and cultural touchstones mentioned from that news cycle. This is Sarah Hader from episode 81, Leaving Islam. Speak for a moment about your background and just how you came to be one of the founders of ex-Muslims of North America. Sure. Um, so I grew up in what I, what I would consider to be a pretty liberal Muslim family. Uh, I didn't know at the time that this that my my upbringing was so liberal relative to other Muslims. I only found out as I began to meet other ex-Muslims about what their reality was to 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 know how good I had it. Uh, but I grew up in a in a relatively liberal Muslim family, which means that they allowed me to move away for college. They allowed me to sort of be a little bit more independent than uh, Muslims generally are. Where were you? Where were you growing up? I grew up in Texas. I was born in Pakistan, and I moved here, um, I think I was seven or eight when we immigrated to the United States. I remember the process of coming here. I remember the shock of coming to this country. Uh, I actually remember the, the first time I saw a woman uh, in public whose legs were exposed. It was, the, it was a flight attendant when we stopped in, in Europe on our way to America. And I remember the shock. Uh, I remember feeling, I, n- not really understanding what I was looking at and not really understanding that this was going to be a norm in America. Interesting. So when did you realize that you were a bit of an outlier in terms of your, your family environment with respect to religion? I started, well, I, I think mo- most atheists would say this, and that's how I, I do identify as an atheist, that that we were always sort of questioning, there were always sort of problems with with religion, and I had them from an early age, but I there was always ways for me to justify religious traditions that I, I may have found problematic. Um, until I got to be a little bit older, I was in my you know mid-teens when I really started looking at the religion um, in a really critical way. I started actually reading for myself the Quran and finding that there were problematic problematic verses and things that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And the more that I looked into it, the, the less that it made sense. Um, and I actually encountered quite a few militant atheists. And this is why, uh, even to this day, I don't, I don't think that militant atheism is such a horrible thing because it does push people like me to look into their faith, if only for the reasons that, you know, that, that, we, want to, that we want to defend it. And that is what happened to me, that I, I, I knew some atheists and they were, you know, giving me some, some questions and probing questions. And I wanted to be able to defend my, my faith. So that, that was one of, the, one of the reasons that I looked into it with such urgency, because I wanted to be able to defend it. And I found that there really wasn't much there for me to defend. Were these ex-Muslims or were these Westerners? Oh, these were Westerners. These were, <laughs> these were people who came from a Christian background and then left, the fa- left their faith. Um, and then started uh, pointing out the problems within Islam to me. And of course, I was offended. So this is, you know, something that, 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 that people talk about a lot, that, that Muslims are offended when you talk about their faith in a critical way. And that's, that's to be expected. And I was offended. I remember being offended. Uh, but that offense, it doesn't really mean anything. And in, in, the, in, in the, the longer arc of what we're talking about, which is, which is truth. And of course, people will be offended if you talk about something that, hold, that they hold so dear. But 
it did it did push me to look into religion. Well, well, the offense is really a symptom of not having an argument. You know, I don't get offended if someone claims that my deeply cherished mathematical beliefs or historical beliefs are false because either they have an argument or they or they don't and just offense never enters into it the fact that we're in the territory where someone only has their offense to wield shows that there's a problem intellectually that's probably a part of it uh, at that time when i was first being confronted with the the problematic verse of the quran i i didn't know it was possible I, it, it, that, sa- that seems ridiculous. And I, as I'm saying it, it sounds ridiculous. But I remember at that time not knowing. You, you just didn't know what was in the Quran at that point when you, were, you first had these conversations. Right. I, I didn't know exactly what was in it. And I didn't know that it was even possible to look at it uh, in anything uh, but, but as you know, this, this extremely virtuous text. I didn't know that there was an interpretation like that out there. So when I first encountered it, it was, it was quite shocking to me. You did an interview with with Jeffrey Taylor, which was a great read, and uh, you said one thing there that I wanted to read into this conversation. You said, if Muslims feel they're being badly treated here in the United States, they can go to Muslim-majority countries. But where can a person like me go? I'm in the safest place I can possibly be, and yet I'm too afraid to tell people where I live. It's tragic for me that there's even a need for our organization. And that really does expose just how unique a position it is to be an ex-Muslim. You are in the safest place in the world to be if you're a Muslim, even, really. I mean, we can talk about the problem of anti-Muslim bigotry, but I think it is safe to say that most Muslims are safer in the U.S. than they are in, in most Muslim-majority countries, given how unstable and sectarian those tend to be. But for an ex-Muslim in the U.S. or in uh, really anywhere in the West, I guess it gets worse once you go to Western Europe, there is this real concern about not being protected by any community. Right. And just to mirror your language, uh, it's true that, I, I believe it's true that most Muslims are safer in the West than they would be in a Muslim country. Uh, but more Muslims are safer in the U.S. than, than are ex-Muslims. Ex-Muslims are less safe in the U.S., ex-Muslims are less safe in Western countries than your average Muslim. And I think that's a perfectly fair fair thing to say, and it should be extremely concerning. Yeah, and obviously you inherit all of the problems of, quote, Islamophobia, in, insofar as that is a problem, having your name looking like someone who was born in Pakistan, you encounter the same bias or bigotry that any Muslim could be worried about going through an airport or in any other situation where that would become relevant. And yet you have this added concern, which I would argue is, is a far more pressing one, which is you have some percentage of the Muslim community that thinks what you're doing warrants a violent response. And you never know how big that percentage is or how much you're on their radar. And it bears repeating this is unique to Islam. As badly behaved as Scientologists are when you take a good swing at that hornet's nest, they don't come and kill you. You know, they, they can make your life miserable. They can sue you. They can show up at your office with a crazed look in their eyes and video cameras pointed at you 18 hours a day. 
these are bizarre people who are in a an especially bizarre cult, but they don't commit murders and they don't commit suicidal acts of terrorism. And so this is again anyone who wants to defend Islam against the unique scrutiny that it merits at this moment has to deal with this fact that as I said before you have a play like the Book of Mormon that becomes a Broadway hit and the Mormons take out an advertisement in Playbill in reprisal right their reaction is really adorable there's not the slightest concern that Trey Parker and Matt Stone will spend the rest of their lives being hunted by religious maniacs. And yet, no one can even imagine staging such a play about Islam at this moment. And, and the, the reasons for that are patently obvious and yet everywhere denied by people who complain about, quote, Islamophobia. Right. I mean, I think if, if Islam could get to where Mormonism is today, that we would, we would be in a much, much better place. And I think that in itself should be, should be telling. The hijab is a, is a good way to illustrate the extent to which liberals are confused about this issue. Because as, as you pointed out, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to see uh, the, the poster, the, I think, Shepard Ferry poster of a woman in a hijab uh, as part of the Women's March. And, you know, I, I understand why people on the left, why progressives have this tendency. I understand what they are trying to do which is to stand for the freedom of religion uh, for, for Muslims. And this is, you know, this is a, a laudable endeavor. This is something that I support. This is a, a, a tendency that I really love about the, about the left. I like that they, that they instinctively want to protect the little guy. Uh, having said that, not everything done in the name of good intentions is necessarily good. And not everything you know, done in the name of good intentions, it will, will, will help the people that you want to help. And in many cases, it might harm the very principles that, or the very people that, that, that you want to help. And I think this is, especially the hijab in, in context of women's rights is, is a case where we can, where can, where we can see this um, in a very, in a very clear way. And so I, I, I support, I supported the women's march, you know, I supported, generally speaking, I'm, I'm, women's rights are really close to my heart and it's really important to me that that feminism is something that becomes uh universal that becomes global so i i support i support generally speaking th- these kinds of these kinds of initiatives but i was really disheartened to see that uh the hijab was suddenly it's it's become this totem you know it's become this this symbol of of religious freedom and it's kind of it's it's pretty perverse uh, given the context of what what the hijab actually is, um, and given the religious justification for the hijab, which is which is dis- distinctly anti-freedom. If this is your first time encountering those kinds of arguments, we encourage you to seek out the full conversations to understand the nuance and how someone like Sarah Hader and Sam are well aware of the counter-arguments and common objections to these kinds of critiques. The moral math regarding how we talk about these things and who is best to talk about them in certain ways is quite tricky. But it's wise to go slowly through these emotionally charged issues and seek out a range of perspectives. It's also wise to note how easy it is to abandon solid moral ground 
when it seems to demand an outward expression that runs against the grain of one's tribe, whether that be political, religious, familial, or social. We're now going to a story of someone abandoning a belief system, which is quite personal to me. It's actually my story and my first interview with Sam on Making Sense. I'll be breaking the fourth wall as your narrator for a bit here and speaking to you directly. So, my name is Megan Phelps Roper, and I grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas. If that name sounds vaguely familiar, you might better recall the images of colorful signs with bold letters and messages like, God hates fags. I grew up holding those inflammatory signs while picketing at funerals and learning the theology of the church, an institution founded by my grandfather, Fred Phelps. I tell my story in detail in a memoir entitled Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. In this next clip, Sam asked me about some of the specific doctrines and beliefs I held while I was a member of the church, and we chronicle a bit of my journey how I started out professing intensely held religious beliefs that I took to be completely true to the place I am now, reading a script for a prominent atheist philosopher. My experience has surfaced the strange nature of belief in my own mind. After we listen in on my conversation with Sam, I'll be back to reflect on what those beliefs were and how my process confirms many of the arguments and stances that Sam has outlined in his career. One familiar retort to arguments and stories like the ones we're sharing in this compilation goes like this. Well, that's not real Islam. Or, that's not real Christianity. Or that, these people are just psychopaths who are going to do these things anyway. I'll provide some of my thoughts on those kinds of responses here. You should also know that for this conversation, Sam and I connected shortly after I'd read an article by Graham Wood entitled, What ISIS Really Wants an article which didn't tiptoe around the explicit link between religious doctrine and outward behavior. Needless to say, I found some parallels in this article worth discussing with Sam. So here's me talking with Sam from a very early episode of Making Sense. This is from episode 12 from 2015, an episode entitled Leaving the Church. Let's back up and talk about uh, your background itself and, and what the, the Westboro Baptist Church is. Many people will have seen the visuals online of, of you and the rest of, the, um, of your family, I guess, holding signs that say, God hates fags, or I think, thank God for dead soldiers is one of them. So to tell me about uh, Westboro and let's get into what you, uh, what you actually believed uh, growing up. Right. Okay. So... Um the protesting started when I was five, um, and the church is uh, located about half a mile from a a public park um, in Topeka, Kansas. And it was this park was known as a place where gays could go and meet and have anonymous sex. And it was something that was well known in the community, and it was even listed in this nationally circulated address book um, of such places, you know, listings across the country. Um, and, you know, one day, you know, a couple of years before the picketing started, um, my grandfather was riding through the park, uh, with my older brother who was at the time about four or five, maybe, um, they were riding their bikes and, you know, my grandfather would ride ahead a little way and then circle back. Um, and one of the times when he was circling back, he saw two men 
you know, trying to lure my brother into the bushes and, uh, you know, just immediately wanted to do something about it. So he started writing letters to the city fathers and, um, and, you know, and going to city council meetings, trying to get, you know, the park cleaned up. Um, I mean, this was, I mean, it was really something that was well known. There were, you know, um, journalists and, and cops, they were doing sting operations. And so it mm. was an undeniable fact. So this this was uh, this was in what year? 88 89. And this was your your father or your grandfather who had this experience? My grandfather. Okay. Uh yes, my grandfather is Fred Phelps, sorry, right. and he's the one who founded, I mean, who was the first pastor of the Westboro Baptist Church. Was he a pastor already or he just decided to become one at this point? So he he was ordained when he was I think 16 or 17 um uh, in Utah and he was kind of a traveling preacher. Um, and then he ended up in Topeka and, you know, he was preaching at a church called the Eastside Baptist Church. And um, they were about to start another church on the other side of town. And uh, they asked him to stay and and be the pastor. So so that's how he ended right. up in Topeka at this church. Um, was he already someone, he had to have already been someone who was quite fundamentalist in his belief anyway, right? Or is this was this a formative moment for him? So the church actually started in 1955. So he had been a preacher for some time before this incident. And his his views over the years had gotten, you know, further and further away from the mainstream. Um, and so when this happened and, you know, he spent, I think it was a, about a year, maybe more than a year, um, trying to get the city to do something about it. Then he said, okay, well, I'm going to do something about this myself. So that's when the picketing actually started. And it was just relatively innocuous signs like, you know, watch your kids, gays troll this park, you know, gays are in the restrooms and, you know, things like that. Um, and the the response, you know, from the community, other churches uh, started coming out to counter protests saying things like God's love speaks loudest. There was a huge contingent of, of protesters uh, from, or counter protesters from, you know, KU, which is about half an hour away from the church. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, and it started, you know, he, there wasn't really wasn't much about God initially, but then when, you know, these, when these churches started to counter protest, they were like, well, you know, the Bible does say things about gays and it's not good. And we are a church and we have to, we have to address this issue. Um, so that's, that's how it initially got started. And then, over the years, it just got more and more extreme. So first, you know, gays were the target. And then it was churches for supporting gays and otherwise, you know, not following what the what my grandfather and the church members believed. Um, they weren't following what the Bible said, not just about gays, but about, you know, premarital sex and divorce and remarriage and adultery. And, and then pretty quickly, um, the funeral protesting started. Um, they were protesting um, uh, funerals of uh, gay people who had died of AIDS. Mm. Um, and it, it was uh, partly an attention-getting mechanism, but it was never it was never just to get attention. Uh, I remember, and this is something that a lot of people, you know, have charged the church with. Yes, they're, they're not really Christian. They don't really, they don't really follow the Bible. Here, look, they ignore this verse and this verse. And, but... I remember listening to my grandfather uh, in an interview a few years ago and the reporter said, some people say that you're just doing these things to get attention. And he kind of looked at her like she was crazy or stupid and, and said, 
well, of course I'm doing it to get attention. How can I preach to these people if I don't have their attention? The charge that things are done just to get attention usually carries with it the the insinuation that people don't really believe what they say they believe, that, that these these expressions of, of hatred are just uh, meant to be inflammatory but aren't necessarily uh, an honest statement of uh, one's outlook. Was there any distance between what you and the rest of the family believed and what you were saying publicly, or is this, were you just simply giving voice to, to your actual worldview? No, we were just giving voice to our actual worldview. I mean, my family uh, didn't come to the table with hatred for LGBT people uh, and, then, and then look to the Bible to justify that hatred, which is a common charge. Um, they read, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And walked away from that with, and you know, not just that verse, but lots of other ones. They walked away from that with, God hates fags and right. supporting the death penalty for gays. And to categorically deny a connection between those words from Leviticus and our beliefs, to say that we read into the text what we wanted to see, is, is I think, to be blind to the nearly all-encompassing power of that sort of blinding faith. And it's, 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 that's why it was such almost a relief um, to read in Graham Wood's article um, to say that ISIS is Islamic, very Islamic, you know? It's, it's not a matter of ISIS being representative of, you know, Muslims as a whole. It's a matter of them drawing inspiration from the text. Yeah, yeah. And the church and your grandfather are sometimes mentioned in this connection. So, so what I find uh, as someone who criticizes the link between religious belief, in this case, Muslim jihadist ideas and a phenomenon like ISIS, I find that that people who don't like that connection very much will say, well, we have our extremists. We have the Westboro Baptist Church. Now, uh, it's always a frustrating thing to hear as though what your family has done is in any way analogous to what is happening throughout uh, much of the Muslim world and in particular uh, in Syria and Iraq right now. But you are, your family's church is often held out as the most extreme variant of Christianity in, in the West and in particular in the U.S., I'm wondering if that's true. I actually don't. I'd like to just f find out precisely what you believed on other topics. So, what what are what are other killing offenses? What would you or what what else would your grandfather pull out of Leviticus as as actionable? I might say adultery, but we we never. This was one of, again. This was one of the things that that. Um, so I had um, okay. For one, they're not actually trying to institute a theocracy. They don't believe that that the United States. They, they believe that the world is going to end and that only a tiny remnant of humanity, which is to say the church itself, and but only the, the true, uh, the elect of God. So they're not trying to actually change the laws. They're not actually trying to make anything happen with the government. They don't believe it's possible, and so it's not something that they pursue. But that, that question about death penalty for vags, this was, that was the very first point um, the, the very first real question that I had about our theology, and when I say question, I mean doubt, the first thing I realized that uh, we were wrong about. Um, and it came from a conversation with a Jewish guy on Twitter. Mm -hmm. 
it was really, um, I mean, I'm advocating for the death penalty for gays and he, you know, and I'm quoting these verses from Leviticus and, you know, and he says, um, well, what about this member of your church who had a child out of wedlock? And and I said, you know, what about her? She repented, so she doesn't deserve that punishment. And he said, says, yeah, but that that's also a sin worthy of death. And, you know, if, um, and also didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? So this is the first time, you know, stepping back from that and re- realizing, you know, if she had been killed, you know, just as if you kill someone, as soon as they sin, mm. you completely cut off the opportunity to repent and be forgiven, which is a major foundation of Christian theology. This is this is what we were preaching: repent or perish. You have you have to repent and follow God's laws and live as we live, and that's the only way to heaven. And then for him to say that, you know, quoting Jesus, "Let he who is without sin cast the first stone," I I realized because we would always answer that that quote because people would throw that in our face all the time we would answer that by saying yeah but we're not we're not casting stones we're preaching words all we have are words we put words on signs and we stand on public sidewalks we're not hurting anybody uh but we were advocating for the government to kill people and what was jesus talking about that you know about there if not um if not the death penalty so you know i take that to you know my mom and a few other people in the church and was just immediately shut down. It's like, mm. no, Leviticus calls for the death penalty. If that penalty was good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. Romans 1 says that gays are worthy of death and so are their enablers. No. So what did your mom uh, say about the analogy to the other member of your family who had had a child out of wedlock? It just that it, that I was getting wrapped around an axle. Like, oh, this is just, it's just not this important piece of theology or or that that the point is they're not going to do it. That's what she said. And, and I remember thinking like, well, yeah, but if we're going to use this as a litmus test, the fact that, you know, instituting death penalty, it, since Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, shouldn't the litmus test be the other direction? Shouldn't right. the fact that we don't do that be, you know, showing that we're obedient to God and, and such? Yeah. So well, one thing that I think we should flag here is that it, it's often believed on the the atheist, secularist, rationalist side of the, the conversation that you just can't reason people out of their heartfelt religious convictions because it, there's this this meme that has gone around uh, often attributed to to someone like Mark Twain. I don't know how actually I don't know who actually said it, but the idea is that if you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into. and uh, but it's clearly not true and and anyone who's actually been, in dialogue with uh, with many people like yourself uh, over the years knows it's not true. Is it your effort to make your beliefs self-consistent and this person on Twitter pointing out a, contra- a logical contradiction in your beliefs was uh, an entering wedge for you, which ultimately separated you from from these ideas that had been drummed into you. So Liz, I, I want to get into what you, what you now believe in a minute, but I, I want to linger for a In 2019, I spoke with Sam on Making Sense again, around the time of the release of my book. The way I now conceive of those old beliefs is something like this. They made complete sense to me at the time, within a context of assumptions that I took to be unquestionable. Specifically, that the Bible was literally true, and that the interpretation by the Westboro Baptist Church was completely accurate. 
I took those claims about reality as givens, and I was operating in a world where they were solid facts. Sam's reflection that bad ideas are a much bigger problem than bad people resonates deeply with me. With the rules of the world that I assumed myself to be in, I had all good intentions and was trying my utmost to be a good person. This may seem like an odd claim, given how hateful my behavior appears from the outside, and it's challenging for some people to fully comprehend. When I revisit my behavior, I fully understand that I did not have a broken brain that was causing my actions, and my family members, who were behaving in similar ways, nearly all of them continuing with that behavior still, also don't have broken brains. There is an unignorable, determinative variable causing that behavior, and it's their belief about reality. Now, of course, that belief is not the only variable resulting in their behavior. There are many complex psychological factors on the table. Things like loyalty to family, fear of ostracization, financial dependency, reactionary personalities, and so much more. But Sam emphasizes and insists that belief, and specific beliefs, must be acknowledged as causes of specific outward behavior. While this may seem uncontroversial and obvious, the implications have become politically radioactive given the tension with competing principles like tolerance of other cultures, ideas, belief systems, and identities. Before I build the fourth wall again and morph back from included guest to narrator, I want to underline a contrast between my shedding of belief with Sarah Hayter's. It's hard to know what other collisions with criticism and challenge to my beliefs would have resulted in, but what ended up pushing me to a close examination and eventual collapse of the first principal claims I held was not so much an aggressive, militant atheism approach with mockery and insult, but rather a steady, prolonged conversation and exposure to very patient conversation partners. Many of those conversations happened on Twitter. We have a compilation dedicated to Sam's interest in social media, which we recommend in light of the unique role that that plays in my story. But now, let's go to another personal account of someone leaving a faith system. This account will give air to some of the psychological variables that we've alluded to that can entrench people in belief systems and religious ideology. This guest's reconsideration of her belief system is absent the encounters with teenage militant atheists or patient, logical deliberations conducted on social media, but is instead interwoven with familial complexities, insecurities, fears, and abuses. But even with these variables highlighted in the brew of ideological trappings, the doctrines and details of the belief system still matter and must be considered. We're also going to let this clip drift into the frustration that certain women feel with a perceived political shield of criticism towards religious ideology, especially those religious ideologies that tend to overlay with specific racial and or national demographics. This is the exact kind of political taboo that Sam and many of the labeled new atheists were unafraid to trespass. After this clip, We'll shift the conversation towards the abstract and philosophical notions of belief and examine various approaches towards knowledge that might help us navigate our way through this topic and propose some defining characteristics of belief. But first, here's the activist and author Yasmin Muhammad sharing her story with Sam from episode 175, Leaving the Faith. Let's just start with your 
story from the beginning. Where where did you come from, and what were your parents like, and what was your upbringing like? This is the beginning of of your story that has, for better or worse, made you one of the most courageous voices uh, I can name at the moment. So to the beginning, I guess, would be my parents meeting each other in university in Egypt. So my dad's from Palestine, and my mom is Egyptian. Um, but Palestinians could go to university in Egypt. It was all covered. Like they were treated as Egyptians, but they weren't given citizenship. So they met in university in Egypt and my mother's family were very angry at her for marrying a Palestinian because they thought he was so beneath her, but they got married and then they moved to San Francisco together and they were there during the peace, love, hippie era. And they had my sister and it was a bit too much peace and love. And so my mom wanted like a quieter place to raise the kids. And so then they moved to Vancouver, Canada, and that's where I was born. Mm. But then their marriage fell apart in the end anyway. So when I was about two years old, my dad, you know, left us, went to the other side of the country. So here my mom is now in a new country, no support system, no community, three children, and she's feeling, you know, depressed, vulnerable, sad, lonely, all that stuff. Mm. And how religious were they at this point? No religiosity whatsoever. Huh. Neither of them. They both grew up very secular. My dad had like zero connection to religion. It was just like a cultural thing. He's very anti-Israel, just being Palestinian, but there's no religious, like him personally, he wasn't mm -hmm. very, um, he wasn't practicing. And then my mom's all alone. And so she goes looking for a support system and she goes looking at the mosque for mm. her community. And at the mosque, she finds a man who is already married, already has three children, but he offers to take my mom on as his second concurrent wife. Right. So, you know, she is happy to have somebody take care of her and take care of her kids. And so she's willing to put up with whatever he's dishing out. My dad was abusive towards her. He used to hit her. And this man never hit her. He'd hit us, of course, hmm. but he never hit her. So she felt like this was a better relationship for her. So she stayed with him as a second concurrent wife. We lived in his basement. And he is very, like my life changed completely when he entered our lives. So before him, I used to be able to, you know, play with my neighbor's friends. Like we'd play Barbies together. I'd go swimming. I'd ride my bike. I'd go to birthday parties, listen to music, ever, just like a normal childhood. And then once he entered our lives, it was just immediate. Everything is haram. Everything is forbidden. And all of a sudden, my mom started covering her hair. And we had to start reading from this book of this you know, these words that I didn't understand. And I had to start praying five times a day. And I resisted it from the beginning. Mm. Of course, I missed my old life. I was especially upset that I couldn't play with Chelsea and Lindsay anymore. They'd always come knocking on the door wanting to play Barbies. And we never, I was never allowed to go. And they were never allowed in. And you're going to the same school at this point or? Yep. But yeah. not for long. Huh. And then I got, as soon as the Islamic school was I mean, it wasn't built, it was in the mosque, but as soon as it was established that we would have a, an Islamic school and my mom was teaching in it, then I started going there. Was this associated with any religious awakening on your mom's part or she just needed a man to take care of her and it was just, just I think practical it was a, and, and romantic? That's well, the right word. I don't know if romantic is part of it. I think you practical for sure. And 
It was a combination of both of those things. So she needed, I think, she was happy to have somebody take care of her. But then also she just became a full-on born-again Muslim. Mm. So she just entered it, like she just jumped all in. It was never, you know, if you see her wedding photos, she looked like a Bond girl, like short wedding dress, big, huge beehive. You know, there was a belly dancer at her wedding. And to go from that to the woman that raised me that I remember is just a pretty shocking difference. Mm. And I used to always, you know, resent that. I'd be like, how come you got freedom? How come you got to live like this? Look at your pictures when you were a kid. You know, how come I don't get that life? And she'd say, because my parents didn't know any better and I'm raising you better and you're going to be a better person and you're going to go to heaven. And my parents did the best they could, but they were wrong. And so how old are you when you're expressing these doubts or? Well, I was about, you know, about six years old when he entered our life. Mm. And I just, I resisted all the way up at probably about nine years old is when I stopped because that's when the hijab was put on me and I started going to Islamic school and it was just too much. So you can't really fight anymore when everything in your life is, you know, pushing you in mm-hmm. one direction. You just, you know, succumb, especially when you're a kid. But according to my mom, I was never, you know, good enough. I, the devil was always whispering in my ear and making me question. I always asked questions, right? Like, if Allah created everything, who created Allah and stuff like mm-hmm. that? Like, how could I even? These are such blasphemous, you know. If Adam and Eve are, you know, the parents of all people, are we all children of incest? So these basic questions of, you know, that a kid would ask, I'd get in trouble for them. So was there any point where you just went hook, line, and sinker and fully adopted the worldview without doubt? Did you, or did you always have some doubt humming in the background? The, The doubt humming in the background finally went quiet once I was forced into the marriage with Hassam. So once I married him and I wore niqab, so that's like full face covering, the gloves, everything, I was so diminished that I didn't have anything left. and, And I also kind of made the conscious decision that I mean, I was desperate for my mom's love and approval. My sister was always the good girl that always listened and never questioned. And mm. and my, I wanted that. I wanted to have, you know, that relationship with my mom. So she kept on pressuring me to marry this man. And I eventually gave in because I thought, you know what? Maybe she'll actually love me if I follow what she wants me to do. I'll marry the man she tells me to marry. I'll do everything the way she says to do it. I've been fighting against this my whole life. What happens if I just let go and see if she's actually right? Hmm. And And, and how old are you at this point? So I'm 20. And I did let go. And I did follow exactly what she said. And until I had my daughter and held her in my arms and saw that she was about to grow up in the same environment that I grew up in. My mom was talking to her the same way she had talked to me. Her father was talking about FGM and her dying a martyr for a law and things like that. And I'm like, okay, enough. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I could maybe accept this world for myself, but I'm not going to accept it for my daughter. There's no way she's going to live this same life. And was he Egyptian? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think people aren't generally aware that FGM is practiced in Egypt. It, it, like 98% yeah. of so it's, Egyptian it's women. So it's basically like Somalia in terms mm-hmm. of 
the prevalence of that practice. So, and this was just a fully arranged marriage or, or it had been encouraged once you had met him? So it, it wasn't fully arranged in that I didn't know I was going to marry him my whole life. Sometimes people arrange marriages for mm. their kids, like from the get-go. But it was definitely a forced marriage, which is a very common thing in the Arab world. So it's like, this is the man we want you to marry. And then you basically just get introduced to him. And the, the woman doesn't need to consent. Like in Islam, it says, silence is consent. So if you just sit there and cry, it's like, okay, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're now, you know, that's like saying I do. And so there, it was, you know, you get pressured into it in the same way you get pressured into everything else. So it's just like wearing the hijab and you, you, get, you get given two choices. Like, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Do you want to be a good, pure, clean girl or do you want to be a filthy whore? Like, these are your choices. Make the right choice. Mm. So forcing you into a marriage is similar kind of coercion. So it would be things like, uh, there's a hadith that says, heaven is at the feet of your mothers. So your mother gets to decide whether you're going to go to heaven or not. So this was the one that was used all the time. And it's a very dangerous weapon for an abusive mother to have. So she would use that one. She'd say, you're never going to go to heaven unless I approve you to enter heaven. And if you don't marry this man, you will never go to heaven. You will burn in hell for eternity. And you will suffer here on earth because you are no longer my daughter. I want nothing to do with you. I won't even allow you to come to my funeral because I don't, like, as far as anyone is concerned, you're no longer my family. Hmm. And then when you die, you'll burn in hell for eternity. So go ahead and make the choice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and you're wearing the niqab at this point? At what point did that happen? Hijab was at nine years old, you know, as far as I could remember. And then once I was engaged to him, started wearing the niqab, he got it all delivered from Saudi Arabia. And uh, that really helps in dehumanizing you. That really helps in turning me into a nothing that he can control very easily. It just suppresses your humanity entirely. It's like a portable sensory deprivation chamber. And you are no longer connected to humanity. You can't see properly. You can't hear properly. You can't speak properly. People can't see you. Mm. You can only see them. I mean, just little things like passing people in the street and just making eye contact and smiling, like that's gone. You're no longer part of this world. And so you very, very quickly just shrivel up into nothing under there. Yeah, well, we're going to get to this, but it is amazing how sanguine Western feminists are around this practice. Like this is just a, another culture's ideal of how to honor feminine beauty and empower women. Who are we to criticize it? We should differentiate the hijab from the niqab. The hijab is just a straight-up symbol of female empowerment now in the West. <laughs> it is just amazing to see what is being done with this. And we have, you know, in the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre, the Prime Minister of New Zealand puts it on as the only possible show of respect for the community. Like, there's just no other way to express solidarity but to don the symbol. And there's so many examples of this. For some reason, people, one, can't see that most of the women on earth right now who are wearing a hijab 
are not doing it based on some empowerment they felt at an Ivy League institution where they just they're just going to take the male gaze off them at their own discretion. So they're forced to do it. The consequences of not doing it in many cases are, if not absolutely coercive social pressure, it's actually physical violence. What have your encounters with Western feminists been like? Well, that makes me really sad that they consider Muslim women to be of some other species and that are so completely different from them. So for themselves, they will recognize all of those things that you talked about are basically victim blaming, you know, slut shaming. They recognize those elements of rape culture when we're in the Western context, which are, you know, they're, they're much harder to see in the Western context. Mm. But under Sharia, it's very, very easy to clearly see a perfect example of rape culture. But they somehow, when it's those women over there, it, it's empowering. Like, would it be empowering for you if you were told you have to wear this clothing in order to protect yourself from men who might rape you? Or you have to wear this clothing in order to be good and pure and go to heaven because if you don't wear it, then you're a filthy whore. Like, you wouldn't, no woman would want to hear that. No seven year old child would like to be told, you have to wear this in order to go to school. And your brother doesn't have to, he can wear whatever he wants, but you must wear this or you're not allowed to get educated. It, it is an atrocity. Like, that, that's something that every human being should be upset about. And the fact that they think that it's okay for those humans over there, but not for us, is the part that really upsets me. Yeah. Yeah. The the double standard is so clear and it really is sanity straining that it's so hard for people to see. So like the, the clearest case for me in the media was when, I don't know if you remember this, but Warren Jeffs, the the leader of the FLDS, the fundamentalist Mormon cult, his compound was raided, and all these little girls and young women were led out in these little house on the prairie dresses, right? They were made to wear these awful 18th century dresses, and they had been married to men who were, you know, their grandfather's ages, and these forced marriages were described as rapes, and the men were totally unrepentant, and, you know, Jeff's got I think it's at least 15 years in prison. I forget, he got a a real prison sentence. And this was all talked about on the news as just an unambiguous example of patriarchal exploitation of girls. The fact that it was associated with with religious belief was not even slightly exculpatory. And everyone celebrated the fact that there was a SWAT team raid on the compound. We kicked in the door of this place to, to free those girls. those girls. And it didn't matter at all that the girls didn't want to be free. Yeah. I mean, we knew they had been brainwashed. Yeah. So when they're talking about how they loved their husband four to a man or whatever it was, no one had any qualm discounting that for their obvious ignorance and brainwashing, right? And when you compare that to what is happening routinely in the Muslim world, the mainstream media has the opposite response. And this is the most benign case of real extremism in the muslim world i mean it's, it's you know in truth it's not even extreme but the extremism in the muslim world you have to add to that 
the clitorectomies that would have been performed on these girls, the fact that they were raising their sons to be suicide bombers, right? And there was a, an explicit indoctrination of you know, martyrdom. And they were exporting terrorism to you know, the capitals of Europe and America. That's how the, the fundamentalist Mormon cult would have to behave to make it an analogous situation. And no one can see it on the left. So, I mean, when you were talking about the difference between that Mormon cult and girls in the Muslim world, I started to tear up because it reminded me of your TED Talk, which I'm going to tear up again. Mm -hmm. That TED Talk to me hit me so hard because it was the first time anybody in like media I'd ever heard somebody care about those girls the same way you would care mm -hmm. about any other girls. Like, the argument you were making in that TED Talk, like, these girls in Afghanistan, why are they different than the girls from the Mormon cult? Hmm. <sighs> Sorry, Sam. Yeah, no, that's just, great. That that was, TED Talk was like... Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. That's... that's uh, <sighs> Sorry, you don't have to ahead. apologize. This is good radio. At the end of that clip, you heard Yasmin make reference to a TED Talk that Sam delivered. That talk compressed his argument against moral subjectivism, an argument he fully lays out in his book, The Moral Landscape. That topic is explored deeply in our compilation on morality, but you can appreciate how intimately it's related to the delicate issue of belief. If belief is a primary driver of behavior, and behavior can be objectively evaluated morally, then it's apparent to see how belief systems become the natural, rightful, and obvious targets for their culpability in motivating immoral behavior. But now, we'll start to refocus ourselves onto broader notions of belief. If you're new to Sam Harris and a bit taken aback to hear how strongly he argues against religion, this next clip is a very important one to pay attention to. Sam is certainly a strident atheist, though he isn't even convinced about the political expediency of using the term atheist. We'll use the term atheist here, with the caveat that Sam is wary of the tendency of labels to generate unhealthy tribalism, and that he sees the description of atheism as the rejection of an epistemology leaning upon faith and unfalsifiable conjecture, which is too broad of a category anyway. But this observation also points to one of Sam's most important admissions of the work laid out before atheism, which we'll save for our final clips in this compilation. Let's first take a moment to comment on the communicative strategies of atheists. Some atheists can take an aggressive approach that unmercifully goes after all faith-based epistemologies equally, from the familiar codified and established religious institutions to fringe, seemingly inconsequential superstitious habits. For these atheists, a direct offensive against all religions, sometimes using mockery, insult, wit, and outrage, is defended as a necessary political tactic designed to draw attention to the harms inflicted by their denizens and supporters. Sam may flirt with and has engaged in those tactics at different points in his career, but for the most part, he's careful to underline just why he takes such umbrage with religion. Sam is quick to distinguish himself from more sledgehammer-wielding atheists 
by insisting that the proclaimed experiential aims of religions are perhaps the most important human experiences possible, and that some of the methodologies they use to urge people to arrive at those mental states are, at least superficially, profound and beautiful. To explain what he means and hear him deflect some common criticism which he insists is unfair, let's quickly read from an essay of Sam's from 2013, which he titled, Islam and the Misuse of Ecstasy. Sam writes, Let me say a few things that will most likely surprise many of my readers. Despite my antipathy for the doctrine of Islam, I think the Muslim call to prayer is one of the most beautiful sounds on earth. Take a moment to listen. I find this ritual deeply moving, and I am prepared to say that if you don't, you are missing something. At a minimum, you are failing to understand how devout Muslims feel when they hear this. I think everything about the call to prayer is glorious, apart from the fact that, judging by the contents of the Quran, the God we are being asked to supplicate is evil and almost surely fictional. Nevertheless, if this same mode of worship were directed at the beauty of the cosmos and the mystery of consciousness, few things would please me more than a minaret at dawn. I also have no problem with spiritual devotion, ecstasy, and awe. In fact, I think they are among the most important experiences a human being can have. I just object to the incredible ideas that surround such experiences in every church, synagogue, and mosque. I also worry that certain religious beliefs make devotion, ecstasy, and awe both divisive and dangerous. Again, my tolerance for difference is much higher than my critics understand. I'm not a scared white guy who is put off by the howls of the natives. In fact, I've done a fair amount of howling with the natives myself. I know what these people are experiencing, and I value many of the same experiences. This empathetic theme in Sam's critique of religion will become more apparent as we move through these clips. So now we'll take that turn we mapped out, shifting away from the personal stories and letting Sam take us deeper into the abstract and philosophical reasons he rejects religious faith so strongly. Not just from the politically obvious ways that the three clips thus far make clear, but from a conceptual and existential level. To hear some of this in action, let's go to another clip. This one comes from a live event that Sam did with two other atheist authors, Richard Dawkins and Matt Dillahunty in Vancouver. Richard Dawkins especially is known to exhibit more of the direct, unabashed derision of religion, offering little patience for its intent and becoming a bit of an avatar of the sharp-tongued, godless critic of the decade. In this clip, we'll hear how Sam places himself slightly apart from his fellow presenters by emphasizing the spiritual core of religious efforts as aiming at something truly worthwhile and important. This comes from Making Sense, episode 105. There's been lots of discussion about uh, how best to engage on these. How much, for lack of a better phrase, how big of an asshole should you be? How much pushback should there be? How seriously should you take them? And quite frequently, someone will come up and present the idea that there are sophisticated theologians that this preacher that I had a debate with is in one category and some other 
academic, erudite theologians are in another category. Hmm. Is that the case? Well, there are sophisticated theologians who accept evolution, of course, and have no problem with that. And so they, our argument with them is a quite separate argument. Um, I, I, I have met sophisticated theologians who believe pretty astonishing things, like believing literally that Jesus turned water into wine. Um, and I thought sophisticated theologians had written all that stuff off and said, oh, no, that's just metaphor, that's just a uh, nice st- story. We don't really believe that in it anymore. But I have spoken to very, very highly qualified, sophisticated theologians, highly educated, uh, they accept evolution totally, but yet they think Jesus turned water into wine and walked on water and rose from the dead and was born of a virgin. Um, all very unscientific ideas, and still they call themselves sophisticated theologians. Well, first we should acknowledge that sophistication is better insofar as it means moderation and less of a commitment to the most dangerous ideas. But my problem with with so-called sophisticated theology is that no one ever admits where the sophistication is coming from. It's coming from a loss of faith in specific doctrines. I mean, it's getting hammered into them from the outside. So, so it's coming from science and, and, and a modern conception of, of ethics, uh, you know, a universal conception of human rights, a, a sense of how unseemly it is to think that anyone by virtue of being born in the wrong place is going to spend eternity in hell just because they didn't happen to hear the, the good word from their, their parents. So, that, so they, they, they lose their purchase on those dogmas, and yet they retain this conviction that, that Jesus was born of a virgin or was resurrected and will be coming back. And, the, and those are just the, it's, it's, a, it's a God of the gaps argument in certain cases, but it's, it's a, you know, there's just certain questions where science hasn't yet closed the door to belief, and so they're putting all of their chips on those, those questions. We, we might have slightly different views of what a sophisticated theologian is, yeah. uh, which is probably a testament to how it's actually not sophisticated theology, but obfuscated theology. What gets labeled as sophisticated theology is the exact same thing. It's not like the arguments of these sophisticated theologians are any more sound than the arguments of Ray Comfort. It's just that they're better speakers. They well, they're actually less sound in one way in that they don't... So the, the, the belief system is still anchored to a belief in revelation. They're still fixated on the texts, but they have ignored much of, of what seems untenable in the texts and they don't have an argument about why that's okay. Because if, if God wrote any of these books, and nowhere in the book does God say, well, you could ignore the first half because I'm, now I'm getting to the good part. <laughs> it's, it's all God's words. It's actually a less principled position than fundamentalism. And that's, it's, that's why it's always, in my view, unstable in the face of fundamentalism because the fundamentalist always has the advantage of saying, listen, I'm going to read the whole book. I'm going to take the most plausible interpretation of it. I'm going to read every word as literally as possible. And that always begins to fixate on more divisive, more doctrinaire, more irrational ideas. At least with a fundamentalist, you, you know what you're arguing against. Yeah. You're not yeah. arguing against a wet sponge. No, there's a... There's a, there's a uh, 
it, it seems perverse to say it, but there's actually more integrity to the most fundamentalist position because it, there's, there's simply one irrational move, which is the, the belief that this book is perfect in every word. But the moment you believe that, well, then it, it, it is, in fact, rational to try to connect all the dots as, as reasonably as possible. But sometimes they really don't say anything. They say something like, well, God is the ground of all being. Um, right. Or God is the essence of isness, or something. Um, <laughs> well, I, act, I have a soft spot for that kind of... I mean, I don't like the, the theistic version of it, but this is perhaps the, o- the only argument I can adduce in favor of, of so-called sophisticated theology, which is there's an experience that people have, you know, Christian contemplatives, say, or, or um, really contemplatives in any tradition and, and have had for millennia, which does, start, it does provoke those sorts of noises from people. I mean, the, the problem is you, you, you get far enough into any of these contemplative traditions and everyone begins to sound like a Buddhist. And then they, you know, if you're in the 14th century uh, in Christendom, the the Inquisition shows up at your door, uh, as they did to Meister Eckhart, who happily died of natural causes just in time. But there's, there's an experience that people have of, you know, losing their sense of self, say, and feeling at one with the universe or the world. Uh, or having some kind of ethical, just a full ethical reboot of their hard drive where they feel love that they didn't know was possible, right? A, a kind of self-transcending love. Yeah, I'd enjoy that, I think. <laughs> there, you begin to hear Sam move swiftly from arguments against the existence of God into his interest in the self, meditation, consciousness, and many other topics which in some atheistic circles, get dismissed as pseudo-religious endeavors which are beside the point of the immediate threat of religious devotion in the world. We'll save Sam's deepest arguments about what there is to discover in the investigations of the illusory nature of the self for their own compilations, but we'll use this opportunity to again distinguish Sam as an atheist who is comfortable swimming in the waters of spirituality and even uses that word with only mild apology. In fact, his book, Waking Up, brandishes the subtitle, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, and he devotes the first few pages to having that word, spirituality, on the cover. He describes his fruitless search for a word which truly points to the deep kinds of experiences that he has in mind, which are not only real, but of supreme importance to an inner life worth seeking. After trying out words like contemplative, transcendental, mystical, and boundless, Sam dragged himself back to the word spiritual, a word that invokes the metaphysical impossibility of a spirit as its root, something that seems to fly in the face of an atheist. But this word is something that Sam wears comfortably enough, and when properly understood, it also informs a reader or listener as to just why he is so repelled and dismayed by the religious tendency to co-opt any inner feeling like this and cast it as a religious experience. This, more than anything else, looks to Sam like an act of deceitful religious fraud and theft of something more fully and deeply achieved by secular means. But of course, the role that communal experience and simultaneous collective participation plays gives the historical established religious institutions 
a strange advantage and a stubbornly persuasive argument for their place in the world, even a world which subscribes more loosely to their professed doctrines. But we'll save that consideration for our outro. We're now going to continue on our map into the realm of epistemology. This next clip is from one of Sam's most famous and, depending on who you ask, most frustrating episodes of Making Sense. We're going to listen to some of Sam's first conversation with a controversial and now very popular author, speaker, and psychologist, Jordan Peterson. This full episode runs about two hours, and Sam didn't even get past the first item on his agenda for the conversation because the two men get stuck on the concept of truth, and they don't budge from it until they run out of energy. Some listeners found this exasperating, while others loved the philosophical wrestling match, even without a referee. One of the persistent challenges to atheism comes in the form of a claim like this. If there is no God, then there is no moral order, and there's no way to determine right and wrong. Peterson presents a more sophisticated version of this argument with his representation of pragmatism. As the name suggests, this is a philosophy of truth that centers around how useful and evolutionarily successful an idea is to determine how much truth it contains. We'll have to briefly import a core concept of the philosophy of morality into this discussion to prepare you for the clip. The philosopher David Hume once famously reasoned that one cannot get an ought from an is. Or in other words, there is no description of the way the universe is that tells us how the universe ought to be. Sam contends that many thinkers have taken this observation way too far and completely severed questions of science and explorations of what's out there from moral judgments of what we ought to do in the world. This severing results in an assumption that morality is entirely subjective. We'll fully explore that topic in our compilation on morality, but what you'll need to keep in mind for this clip is that Sam places himself in the moral realism camp. He takes the position that there are moral truths to discover that are objective and can be uncovered, or at least deeply informed, by methods of science. Or in the very least, Sam believes that the severing of is questions from ought questions is a nihilistic disaster. This position and argument for secular paths to objective morality gives him confidence that the worry that morality needs a god to command it and divinely transmit it to us is an unnecessary fiction. Peterson, however, is not so confident in that. To him, God is not only necessary, but true enough, because God works to bridge the impossible is-ought gap for us. So his phrasing of the worry that without God there is no morality can be understood as an insistence that without oughts we will descend into suicidal nihilism. In this regard, he and Sam might agree, but Peterson suggests that the only way to have oughts is not through the pursuit of ises, as Sam would advocate, but to cling to God as the definer of those oughts, and to use his brand of pragmatism to label that idea as true enough to be considered true, since it's worked for so long, as evidenced by the survival of the species. As you'll soon hear, Sam is no fan of using the word truth in this way, and he remains entirely unconvinced of the necessity or philosophical robustness of that framework. So, hopefully that helps as we listen in on this clip, 
that continues to dance towards and around the notion of truth and belief. Some listeners loved this episode, while others found it to be frustrating and impenetrable. See what you think about truth, belief, unbelief, and religion as we listen in on Making Sense episode 62, What is True? I think we need to talk about religion and science and atheism and the foundations of morality, things like meaning, your interest in mythology, your fear of nihilism. Let's get into all that. I think you and I share some fundamental concerns, and we feel a similar kind of urgency. I think it expresses itself in slightly different ways and different ways of talking, but we we feel an urgency that our fellow human beings get certain questions right. I think a good starting point is this the concept of truth. I've heard you say in a variety of ways that religious truth isn't scientific truth, and that the difference here is that science tells you what things are, and that religion tells you how you should act. Yeah, that's a good... That Well, um, I'm going to approach that obliquely to begin with. So I've been thinking a lot about the essential philosophical contradiction between a Newtonian worldview which I would say your view is nested inside, um, and a Darwinian worldview, because those views are not the same. They're seriously not the same. I mean, the Darwinian view, as the American pragmatists recognized, so that was William James and his crowd, recognized almost almost immediately was a form of pragmatism. And the pragmatists claimed that the truth of a statement or process can only be adjudicated with regards to its efficiency with, with, in, in, attaining, in attaining its aim. And so their idea was that truths are always bounded because we're ignorant, and every uh, action that you undertake that's goal-directed has an internal ethic embedded in it, and the ethic is the claim that if what you do works, then it's true enough, and that's all you can ever do. And so, and what Darwin did, as far as the pragmatists were concerned, was to put forth the following proposition, which was that it was impossible for a finite organism to keep up with a multi-dimensionally transforming landscape, environmental landscape, let's say. And so the best that could be done was to generate random variants, kill most of them because they were wrong, and let the others that were correct enough live long enough to propagate, whereby the same process occurs again. So it's not like the organism is a solution to the problem of the environment. The the organism is a very bad partial solution to an impossible problem. Okay, and the thing that the thing that about that is that you can't get outside that claim. Now, I can't see how you can get outside that claim if you're a Darwinian, because the Darwinian claim is that the only way to ensure adaptation to the uh, unpredictably transforming environment is through random mutation, essentially, and death, and that there is no truth claim whatsoever that can surpass that. And so then that brings me to the next point, if you don't mind, and then I'll shut up and let you and let you talk. Mm. So I was thinking about that, and I thought, thought about that for a long time. So it seems to me there's a fundamental contradiction between Darwin's claims and, and the Newton deterministic claim and the, and the materialist objective claim that 
science is true in some final sense. And so I was thinking of two things that I read. One was the attempt by the KGB back in the uh, in the late part of the 20th century to hybridize um, smallpox and Ebola and then aerosol it so it could be used on on you know for mass destruction. And the thing is is that that's a perfectly valid scientific enterprise, as far as I'm concerned. It's an interesting problem. Um, you might say, well, you shouldn't divorce it from the surrounding politics. Well, that's exactly the issue, is how much it can be divorced, and then, and from what. And then the second example is, you know, a scientist with any sense would say, well, you know, our truths are incontrovertible. Let's look at the results, and we could say, well, let's look at the hydrogen bomb. You know, if, if you want a piece of evidence that our theories about the subatomic structure of reality are accurate, you don't really have to look much farther than a hydrogen bomb. It's a pretty damn potent demonstration. And so then I was thinking, well, imagine for a moment that the invention of the hydrogen bomb did lead to the outcome, which we were also terrified about in the during the Cold War, which would have been, for the sake of argument, either the total elimination of human life or perhaps the total elimination of life. Now, the latter possibility is quite unlikely, but the former one certainly wasn't beyond comprehension. And so then I would say, well, the proposition that the universe is best conceptualized as subatomic particles was true enough to generate a hydrogen bomb, but it wasn't true enough to stop everyone from dying. And therefore, from a Darwinian perspective, it was an insufficient pragmatic proposition and was therefore, in some fundamental sense, wrong. And perhaps it was wrong because of what it left out. You know, maybe it's wrong in the Darwinian sense to reduce the complexity of being to um, a material substrate and forget about the surrounding context. So, well, you know, those are two examples. And so you can have a way at that if you want. Yeah, okay. So there are a few issues here that I think we need to pull apart. I think that the basic issue here and where I disagree with you is you seem to be equivocating on the nature of truth here. You're using truth in two different senses, and finding a contradiction that I, that I don't, in fact, think exists. So let's talk about, about pragmatism and Darwinism briefly for a second. So I've spent a lot of time in the, the thicket of, of pragmatism because I was a student of Richard Rorty's at Stanford, and I took every class he taught and just basically did nothing but argue with him about pragmatism. So I'm very familiar with this way of viewing the concept of scientific truth. I'm not so sure our audience is deeply schooled in this. So briefly, let me just add a little to how you describe pragmatism. The idea is that we can never stand outside of human conversation and talk about reality as it is or truth as it is. We never, we never come into contact with naked truth. All we have is our conversation and our tools of augmenting our conversation scientific instruments and otherwise. And all we really have, the, the currency of, of truth, is whatever successfully passes muster in a conversation. So I say something that I think is true, and 
it seems to work for you. We have a similar, we're playing a similar language game. And some people disagree. They criticize what we are, are claiming to be true. And we go back and forth. And all we ever have is this kind of ever expanding horizon line of successful conversations that allow us to do things technologically that are very persuasive. So as you say, we can build hydrogen bombs. And so the conversation about the structure of the atom, at the very least, the conversation about the amount of energy hidden in the otherwise nebulous structure of an atom, that becomes you know, very well grounded in facts that we, that we all can agree are, are intersubjectively true. Yeah, well, that seems to that seems to weaken the claim that it's just within language, you know, which is kind of a postmodern claim too, because it's very difficult for me to believe that the hydrogen bomb is what it is just because we agree what it is in conversation. You know, it, it immediately yeah. reflects a world outside of now that outside of language. That doesn't mean we we get permanent and omniscient access to that world, but but it's more than language as far as. So maybe I'm misunderstanding Rorty or, or, um, I think you're, you are understanding him. He just, he will say that again, all we ever have is our effort to organize the way the world seems to us with concepts and language. And we just have successful iterations of that and unsuccessful ones. And a hydrogen bomb explosion, no matter how big, assuming we survive it, still falls within this empirical context of an evolving language game. But to get back to some of your claims here, there's this claim you're making about the Darwinian basis of truth and knowledge, that there really is just survival, right? There's just you know, biological change selected against by an environment, and there's what works in that context, what is pragmatic in that context biologically, and there's what doesn't, and what doesn't gets you killed. Yeah. Now, obviously, that picture of, of how we got here is something that I agree with. Right. But our conception of truth, and our conception of truth in general, and scientific truth specifically, and, and even of Darwinian evolution within that subset of truth claims, that is not functioning by merely... Darwinian principles, and this just goes to right. But that that could be an objection to its validity. Like, there's no reason to assume. And, and I, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm perfectly happy with science. I'm a scientist, and um, but there's no reason to assume that our our view of the world, our current scientific view of the world, isn't flawed or incomplete in some manner that will prove fundamentally fatal to us. As a working assumption, we can decide not to worry too much about that, and that's fine. But yes, I agree, and more fundamental than that, and I think this is the accurate version of the claim you're making, there is just the fact that within the Darwinian conception of how we got here, there's no reason to believe that our cognitive faculties have evolved to put us in error-free contact with reality. That's not how they evolved. I mean, we, we did not evolve to be perfect mathematicians or perfect logical operators or perfect conceivers of scientific reality at the very small, you know, subatomic level or at the very large cosmic level or at the very old cosmological level. We are designed by the happenstance of evolution to function 
within a very narrow band of, of light intensities and physical parameters. The things we are designed to do very well are, you know, recognize the facial expressions of apes just like ourselves and to throw objects in parabolic arcs within a hundred meters and, and all of that. And so right. the fact that we are able to succeed to the degree that we have been in creating a vision of scientific truth and the structure of the cosmos at large that radically exceeds those narrow parameters, that is a, it's a kind of miracle. It's an amazing fact about us that seems not to be true, remotely true, of any other species we know about. And that's, that's something to be celebrated, and it's a lot of fun to see how far we can get in that direction. But I would grant you that there are no guarantees as we move forward in that space. And in fact, we should be skeptical about how easy we can have it in this space. So partly I made the case that I made to indicate to you and the listeners where I'm starting from in some sense. So I think it's not unreasonable to assume that you're making the metaphysical claim in some sense that Darwinian truth is nested inside Newtonian truth. I wouldn't call it Newtonian. Let me just change your words a little bit, but it may be a distinction without a difference here. But I would oppose realism, scientific realism, and even moral realism. I consider myself a moral realist. I think there are right and wrong answers to moral questions. I would oppose realism with pragmatism. And the core tenet of realism yeah. for me is that it's possible for everyone to be mistaken. It's possible for there to be a consensus around truths that are, in fact, not true. It's possible to not know what you're missing. There's a horizon of cognition beyond which we can't currently see, and we may be right or wrong about what we think exceeds our grasp at the moment. And so that's, that's something that the pragmatist can't say. The pragmatist has to locate truth always within the context of existing conversations, existing consensus. And in this Darwinian conception of truth, you are saying that there's just what works for us biologically, pragmatically, as apes on Earth now, and there is nothing, there's no larger context of truth claims that we can make that situates that in a, in a larger sphere, where you can intelligibly say that everyone is wrong about something. Well, it's complicated, and I wouldn't say I'm saying exactly that. Um, I certainly don't agree with the language game part of it. Um, and see, if you, if you think of the Darwinian process as something you can't escape, like there's no outside of it. And partly the reason for that is that you're just too damn ignorant to, to get outside of it in any, in any transcendent manner. Now, you might say, well, you can do that to some degree with science, and I'm not going to argue with that. But, but before you move on, let me just understand the claim, because... It seems to me we are outside of it in every respect where you want to emphasize the Darwinian component of it. So we're, we're outside of the implications that, you know, certain phenotypes would have killed you outright 5,000 years ago, whereas now we have a civilization... Let's let that one fade out. Hopefully you found some threads to follow in that episode if it was your first time. Or perhaps our lead-in helped you hear it in a new way, if this wasn't your first listen. To finish this compilation, we're going to return to the more familiar and common concerns of religion and religious faith, 
and play two moments from the Q&A section of live events. We've emphasized throughout these clips two important themes to keep in mind regarding Sam's critique of religion. One theme is that he doesn't shy away from criticizing specific beliefs. The other theme is that Sam's ire for religion comes from a place of empathy toward its deepest spiritual goals. We have a compilation dedicated to Sam's focus on meditation and mindfulness, which can sound superficially friendlier to some Eastern religious frameworks. But Sam is fiercely secular in his defense of spiritual and transcendent experience, and he's determined to wrestle these indispensable aims away from the unnecessary, corrosive, and static epistemologies of religion. But that second theme does have an interesting shadow. Many people contend that religious structures are social necessities that forge the path for these spiritual experiences. They have rich histories of tradition, song, food, games, and art that bind people to something meaningful and can't be haphazardly erased without personal and societal disaster. Sam was presented with this precise type of challenge in the Q&A section of a solo live event that he hosted for his book, Waking Up in 2014. My question has to do with the project of creating a secular institution of spirituality. And uh, it seems to me that uh, the creation of um, the moral teamwork and community that happens in religion is part of the diamond and not part of the dunghill. And I'm wondering, uh, when you think about that, um, this project that lies before us of creating uh, cultural institutions that have rites of passages and buildings to go to on Sundays mm. and so on. Um, could you just talk about whatever that, what are the issues that uh, come up for you or what your vision looks like when you think about that project? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a big project. I, I don't know... I mean, on one level, it's it's money. I mean, so it's it's just just imagine what it would take to build a beautiful building in San Francisco that was dedicated to whatever this vision is. I mean, we, we, you know, we name this thing, and then we now all of us here and all of our friends decide, well, we want to we want to build a building. Okay, that's it's a huge project, and uh, the amazing thing is that you can't walk for two minutes without running into a church or a synagogue or a mosque. So that, you know, religions have done this and it's just amazing. So we don't have, um, uh, it's, a, it's a big, it's a, you know, a generational project. And, but there are, we have piecemeal ways of getting it. And, and uh, I think we have to notice that those piecemeal ways are, are surrogates for what people are getting out of religion, you know. So you have like a conference like TED, which is, you know, great and fun and brings a lot of people together and and smart things are talked about and then it gets disseminated and and that's you know I would love it if we had a sort of a mini TED conference in every city, every Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. in a hundred right. different buildings. I mean that would be and and you could make it better than the TED, a TED conference or you could make it slanted and more toward this area than just you know this the usual. Head fair, but it would be great to have a building that you could go to where every Sunday you get together with like-minded people and something incredibly profound and interesting was being talked about and then you could all hang out for a few hours. That would be, that would be great. There are many pieces to this, but the, the pieces are not in place. And, and I think 
you know, having rituals that, that mark different moments in life that are not religious but, uh, but uh, totally rational and yet empowering. I think we need those things. You, know, how you need a, a rite of passage you know, instead of a, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah in Judaism. I think you need a, a rite of passage for teenagers that just is incredibly important for them that doesn't presuppose any divisive religious nonsense. And, and, but I, you know, the task is for rational people everywhere to, to create those things. We're sort of left having to do it ourselves at this moment. And that's, that's a, uh, you know, we don't have, the problem for secular people, and this is, this is just a hole in secularism, is that we don't have a, a canon of off-the-shelf uh, material. So you, when somebody dies, right, you just, you know, who do you call when you're an atheist? So people, a lot of people find themselves calling a rabbi or a priest and just asking him to dumb it down so that, you know, it's like, we don't believe this, she didn't believe this, so just don't mention God, but, you know, we're really happy you came because we don't know what the hell to do. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's the situation we're in. I, I think it's, it's a, something we, we need to solve. So, but that's, Agreed. that does take some effort, yeah. The social and structural significance of religious institutions is difficult to dismiss. And it's important to acknowledge that its rapid elimination could create a vacuum that's not guaranteed to be filled by beauty, philosophy, and peace. Certainly, many contemporary commentators are considering this factor to forecast a potentially volatile moment in society and a rapid expansion in pseudo-religious political ideologies worldwide. But our very last clip is a question that takes this concern to a deeply personal level. This comes from an event in Australia in 2012. This questioner seemed to have recently shed her religious belief in something like faith in the godly meaning and control of events. This is sometimes referred to as the problem of evil in philosophy, or more colloquially, the familiar expression, why do bad things happen to good people? For a believer in divine, compassionate wisdom, events like drive-by shootings, childhood cancers, hurricanes, genocides, and car accidents are said to be mysterious and wrong only to us. But in the mind of God, ultimate judgment and compassionate order persist. And we can sleep easier knowing that God has a plan to sort out all the injustice in the end. But if you shed that belief entirely, you can be swept away by the sudden wave of engagement and responsibility for human, worldly action and intervention as the only safeguard against ultimate tragedy. Sam addresses this questioner's small crisis while also acknowledging the secular versions of the same passive retreats that sometimes lead religious people to disengage from the world. This comes from a talk entitled Death and the Present Moment delivered in 2012, shortly after the death of Sam's friend and colleague, Christopher Hitchens. Hi, Sam. Uh, as an atheist, I have really started valuing uh, life like, and the dignity of life. But the problem is that now when I hear of any loss of life which has happened due to some deliberate actions of others or due to some carelessness of others, it's, 
it saddens me you know it grieves makes me angry because earlier i used to just feel oh accident happened because it ha- right. it just had to happen and it happened but now i can see the responsibility of other peoples that others are being robbed of their li- right to live and so how do i deal with this like this anger this grief me or other atheists like me who can clearly see the responsibilities of others Right, right. Um, well, as I said, this, this, uh, the change in attitude that I just recommended, that I kind of smuggled mindfulness meditation into this talk and, and foisted it on 4,000 atheists. Uh, so you're now all Buddhists. That's a, I'm sorry to have done that to you. Um, but... It is an antidote to that kind of suffering. I mean, when you look closely at the mechanics of your own suffering, you find that when you're suffering, you are lost in thought. Now, that may seem like a, the pushback you immediately get from that is that, well, some things are worth suffering over. You mean, you mean to tell me that, you know, my child dies and I could stop, to suffer, stop suffering if I just, you know, break the spell of thought? Yes, to some degree. I mean, it's, it's, but it's, it's damn hard to do when, when the bar is set that high, uh, when you're dealing with, with the death of someone close to you. But it is po- the experience of... of so the, the thing you just did for five minutes is something that I have done. I've gone on retreat for weeks and months at a time and in silence for 18 hours a day just did that exercise. Uh, and so well, the, the, it takes a long time to realize how much thought is clouding your, your experience at the present moment and, and how, much it's, um, how much of our kind of mediocrity and how we feel moment to moment is just a matter of us continually thinking, this undercurrent of thought. And so when, some, so when something terrible happens, the undercurrent of your thought is you know, all of the, you know, these, these kind of grief-stricken ideas. I'll never see her again. Uh, the memory of how uh, much you loved her, back and forth, back and forth, and, and, and you're buffeted by thought ceaselessly. And, the, and for most of us, there is no alternative, but to, we're just hostage to the contents of the next thought. Uh, and there is, if there's relief to be found in the face of death and loss, the, the relief is to bear down upon the present moment and become interested enough in the, in the present moment so that you, you can notice that, that to some degree consciousness is, is equanimous even in the presence of that kind of emotional pain. And it does, and then um, uh, it, does, it does erode the pain of, of that pain. And again, it's, it, it, to some degree, it's, it's a kind of framing issue. It's like it's the difference between thinking that the pain in your arm is because you're now getting uh, so good at lifting weights, uh, or thinking that it's because you've got bone cancer. It could be the exact same sensation, but that the framing is, is, is the, the difference is total. And so what I'm recommending to you is many good things come from training. We give no thought to training the mind. We give a lot of thought to training our body. We give a lot of thought to training uh, to, to physical health. We give a lot of thought to getting more information, education, understanding more about the world, more facts. We give very little thought to training attention itself. 
And one of the dividends paid, and there's, uh, there's a fair amount of neuro neuroscientific research on this point, uh, on specifically the point of mindfulness meditation, uh, is that emotional self-regulation and, and many you know, cog cognitive improvements, many good things happen when you can actually just drop your stress and the automaticity of thinking for a moment and, and just be aware of the next sensation, the next thought, the next moment of a mood. And, and there's just our experience is a flow in the present moment and there's, there's re relief to be found there, but it's, it can be kind of hard won. It, it takes training. It takes, it takes a commitment to um, not merely brooding and thinking. Uh, and that's, uh, again, and, and that's, I'm not, I'm not discounting the utility of thought and I'm, and I'm not discounting the importance of sorting out the world. You know, there's a quietistic bias among meditators that I think is completely dysfunctional. And we don't want a culture of people who are not engaged and not trying to improve the world. Uh, but if there's any kernel of truth in the religions we so deplore, and they are just a carnival of errors, the truth is that it's possible to sink into the present moment in such a way as to find it sacred and to, and to cease to have a problem. And that's, that's just a fact that for which there's so much testimony and unfortunately most of the testimony is contaminated with religious bullshit. So, that's where we go. There's so much more to explore about the idea of belief. Any deep investigation quickly finds itself intertwined with considerations of neurobiology, free will, morality, scientific methods, spirituality, and even politics. The famed philosopher Karl Popper once warned other philosophers not to get obsessively lost defining terms and words. He thought this habit was disastrous to good philosophical pursuit. He suggested that we can better illuminate a concept by presenting specific problems to solve that relate to a concept, rather than endlessly trying to define the terms directly. For example, people can use the word justice coherently without being able to provide a comprehensive definition of it, and they can reach a useful, mutual understanding of it by considering certain judicial rulings or parental remedies. Imagining, encountering, or presenting specific problems about a term like justice may be more fruitful than defining it narrowly. But belief is one of those concepts and terms that seems to attract scrutiny like a magnet. It seems to cry out to be taken seriously and have its sacred persona respected while issuing a warning to tread lightly so as not to disturb some unquestioned ground upon which meaningful and important societies and psychologies stand but it also seems to simultaneously declare itself to be aloof, unaffected, and unbothered by the persistent flying arrows of scientific falsification. Perhaps all of us secretly want our beliefs to be true and to survive the barrage of scientific critique, and this attitude of indifference is only a front for a threat, a warning against science looking behind the curtain. For a few of the stories we included in this compilation, including mine, the process of dismantling or crumbling a belief system begins with allowing it to be exposed to the scientific challenge of explaining reality. But you also heard Peterson offer a different defense of belief and truth with his applied pragmatism. 
A belief is a kind of fact claim about reality that can have pragmatic value, even if it's not true or not meant to be taken literally. For example, carrying a belief around that every gun is loaded might be a really good idea. Does this make it true enough to contain some truth to it in a pragmatic sense? An author like Peterson might argue for that conception of truth, and he may argue for the same kind of pragmatic conception of truth when it comes to carrying around religious beliefs, if one considers a life without them to be as dangerous and unsurvivable as Russian roulette, a position he is sympathetic to as someone who urges against atheism. Sam, of course, thinks that this twisting of the word truth badly confuses things, and that religious truth claims about history, the physical world, and the insistence on a metaphysical world need to be parsed carefully and identified as literal or metaphorical truths. What does it mean to believe that Muhammad rode to heaven on a winged horse? Or to believe that Jesus rose from the dead after three days and ascended into heaven? Or that Noah put two of every animal on an ark that survived a flood that God sent to cleanse the world? Are these actual claims about history that are in the same category as a belief that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? Or are these metaphorical claims that merely poetically analogize deeper psychological or philosophical truths and hold some kind of arguably advantageous quality? Being clear about this difference is something that Sam advocates for, and that advocacy may be rooted in his consequentialism. If we identify a deeply held belief as something that someone protects or assumes to be true, which then motivates one's behavior, then many impactful and potentially destructive actions are justifiable. If one has a specific, deeply held belief about the fate of souls in the afterlife, one might deeply justify aggressive proselytizing or even suicide bombing, and they would hold these actions to be entirely consistent with moral activity. It's important to know whether the underlying belief is a literal truth claim or a metaphorical one, in order to inform our sometimes urgent and massively consequential intervention. We titled this compilation Belief and Unbelief to emphasize the personal stories of shedding belief systems, but it could have just as easily been titled Belief versus Truth or even Belief versus Theory. Theory is a word that one of the people you heard from, Richard Dawkins, doesn't love to use because of the confusion that can come along with its common usage, which suggests that it's something as flippant as a mere guess. But in philosophical and scientific terms, a theory is something much more impressive than a simple guess. And paradoxically, a theory can celebrate its impressiveness because it's inherently exposed to efforts to falsify it. In other words, it gets its power precisely from its existential uncertainty. But existential uncertainty can sound like a difficult psychological state of loneliness. It can present atheism as the admission of being a cosmic orphan in a chaotic existence. So an unchallengeable, deeply held religious belief, in an effort to fortify against this supposed dread, announces that it doesn't participate in this game of falsification. It's the declaration of a certainty that only needs to be defended rather than falsified. For certain religious apologists, this position is necessary and has pragmatic truth. For other true believers, the pragmatism plays much less of a role than insistence on the inherent, 
literal truth claims in the doctrine. But as we hope we've displayed, Sam tries to engage in this struggle with a high degree of awareness of the place that religion, and even generic individual belief, play on a personal and civilizational level. He also isn't the first famous atheist to try to toe this line. Perhaps the most famous three-word quote in written atheistic philosophy comes from Friedrich Nietzsche when he wrote in 1882 that God is dead. Many atheists have put that on a t-shirt or bumper sticker and called it a day. But the rest of the passage should not be missed. In it, Nietzsche poetically lays out the challenge before atheists to contend with the existential, societal, and psychological void that is ushered in by the announcement of God's revealed non-existence, which came along with the Age of Enlightenment for many thinkers. Nietzsche's full statement goes like this. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Sam has taken Nietzsche's challenge to heart and poured much of his effort into developing meditative tools, practices, mindsets, and lessons to try to approach the greatness of that deed. If belief is an understandable but hollow clinging to ultimate certainty, then unbelief is the beginning of stepping into an unknown, messy world, and the infinite process of problem-solving, truth-seeking, and meaning-making. Speaking as someone who has moved from belief to unbelief, I can endorse the shift as profoundly important and horizon-expanding. And even if the personal and social aspects aren't always easy, falling in love with the endless exploration of existence, armed only with the uncertainty of scientific theory and boundless curiosity, is something I cherish. And having Sam's public efforts to make sense of the world available doesn't hurt either. Here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of belief and unbelief. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 81, 12, 175, 105, 62, and 61. As always, we recommend listening to the full episodes, as they cover much more ground than was included here. But it's especially important with these episodes as we were only able to include a small part of the intricate personal stories. As we mentioned, there are several other Making Sense episodes that would have fit in with this subject. To name just a few, Sam spoke to Richard Dawkins about evolution and atheism live on stage in episodes 57 and 60. He's spoken about Islam with Ayan Hirsi Ali, Shadi Hamid, and Majid Nawaz in episodes 50, 55, and 59. Sam also spoke about political emergencies related to Islam with Graham Wood, Fareed Zakaria, and Douglas Murray in episodes 82, 83, and 85. The grouping of these episodes on a certain trend of belief speaks to Sam's aforementioned consequentialism, where he tends to focus on the seemingly most impactful ideologies of a given moment. 
He spoke to Kurt Anderson on America's history of myth and fantasy shortly after the 2016 election, which opened up the topic of political religions. That was episode 103, American Fantasies. Sam did have a second conversation with Jordan Peterson in episode 67, where they tried to pull themselves out of the definitional quicksand. In episode 139, he spoke to Bill Maher and Larry Charles, who made the film Religious. We could go on, but this list should be plenty to get you going. For book recommendations, we'll start with The End of Faith and Waking Up by Sam himself. For two bookends that showcase his simultaneous vitriol and deep empathy for religious devotion. For two memoirs, I wrote a book entitled Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Yasmin Mohammed self-published a book she titled Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam, which not only tells her personal story, but, as the subtitle suggests, displays her frustration with Western feminism's abandonment of women subjugated in cultures deemed to be victims of Western hegemony. Sarah Hayter does most of her writing on her Substack newsletter called Hold That Thought. We also recommend checking out and supporting her organization, Ex-Muslims of North America. Matt Dillahunty tells his story along with fellow prominent atheist and former believer Seth Andrews in a book they titled Deconverted, A Journey from Religion to Reason. Richard Dawkins has written a slew of relevant books, including The God Delusion and Outgrowing God. He and Sam also recently released a book called The Four Horsemen, which looks back at their initial collaboration and now minorly famous fireside chat in 2007, along with Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. We'll also recommend two books from authors who were not included in this compilation. The prolific Alain de Botton has a book entitled Religion for Atheists, which advocates for secular-minded people to learn from the techniques of religious practice. And Sasha Sagan has a beautiful book which puts much of those techniques into practice. Of course, there is much to find in classic philosophy on the subject of God and atheism, from Epicurus, Spinoza, John Stuart Mill, and David Hume, just to name a few. The famous God is Dead passage comes from Friedrich Nietzsche's The Gay Science in 1882. If you want to give a Richard Rorty book a shot and imagine Sam persistently arguing with him, you might try his 1979 book, Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, which was Rorty's attempt to dismantle objective notions of truth. Objective truth being something that's central to Sam's moral philosophy. From the film world, we'll recommend the 1997 film Contact, which was based on a book of the same name written by Carl Sagan in 1985. And we can't forget the classic 1968 film by Stanley Kubrick, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is still one of the best conversation pieces out there. There are countless documentaries to recommend, but I personally have to cringe a little while recommending Louis Theroux's The Most Hated Family in America from 2007, which features my family and me at a time when I was deep in the throes of the ideology of the Westboro Baptist Church. We'll also recommend Bill Maher's Religious, Jesus Camp, Marjo, and An Honest Liar, which followed the life of the magician James Randi. For a look at the American legal battle that set a precedent regarding the separation of church and state, we recommend a 2010 documentary entitled The Lord is Not on Trial Here Today, 
which details the story of Vashti McCollum, who challenged the practice of religious teachings being implemented at her son's public school in 1944. The 8-to-1 Supreme Court ruling in her favor four years later seems vulnerable to intense reinterpretation at the time of this writing. There are a lot of great video essays on YouTube in the genre of inspiring humanistic atheism. We'll share two of our go-to videos from the last decade. One is a video titled, Science Saved My Soul, by a user named Phil Hellenus. And the other is a video entitled, A Universe Not Made For Us, by the legendary Carl Sagan. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro, and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper.